Ace Aegis Church, welcome back to another Sunday and welcome to week two in our major fall series out of a letter called 2 Timothy. These are Paul's last words before he dies. And yet they give us so much inspiration and hope. So if you've got a Bible, physical, virtual, uh, would you turn to 2 Timothy chapter one? If you don't, no matter what device you're watching on or television, it's gonna appear right beside me, the scriptures as we go through them. Now, let me do some background again. Near the end of Paul's life, he's under arrest more than once. When he writes letters like 1 Timothy and Philippians, he's under what we call house arrest. He's got lots of access, good food, lots of freedom. But 2 Timothy, it's bad. It's actually all gone. This letter, which again is Paul's last words, are written from a terrible, dark, scary, unsanitary jail cell, an unwinnable moment, a trap season, a no way out season. And Paul is waiting for death. He's on death's door. And what shines through this dark, dangerous, maximum security jail cell as he is waiting for his own execution? Something so bizarre, so unhuman, yet so Christian. Hope. I mean, hope is everywhere breaking through him personally, emotionally, environmentally. See, in chapter one, Paul is encouraging Timothy, who's a young spiritual son to him and a young pastor, and he's encouraging him and then, of course, his church and then all of us. And what he keeps doing, like I shared last week, is he points us backwards to what God has already done, what God has established, what God can not change and will never change. Because once that's established, then we can have hope in the now and have a secure future. It's, it's sort of like Paul moves from eternity into time and then out again into eternity. Now, what I want to do is I want to start back at verse 8. It's what I preached last week. I don't think I've done this before. I'd like to re-preach verse 8 fully, but go beyond what I did last week. And why? Because I want a longer sermon? No, no, no. There's some things I wasn't able to say last week. I need to. But not only that, in the original language, verse 8 through 12, actually, are, is, it's one long sentence. It's like a run-on sentence, and it's one big thought. So let's start here. 2 Timothy 1.8. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, Jesus, or me as prisoner. Paul says, I am Jesus' prisoner. Okay, why does this matter? Well, the Romans are like, well, we own this guy. We own his fate. We're going to execute him. He's in our jail. He's our prisoner. The, the Jewish religious establishment, which Paul used to be part of at the center of, actually, think, no, no, he's our prisoner because we brought charges against him. What does Paul say? No, no, no. The Romans don't own me. The Jewish religious elite don't own me. No one owns me. I'm Jesus's prisoner. Why does that matter? Because Paul is declaring in the worst situation that Jesus is really in charge. Sovereignty is real. And he roots his life there. Sovereignty, not what? Situationalism. Years ago, one person said, make no mistake. This is what Paul would be thinking. Christ is the master of my fate and the Holy Spirit is the captain of my soul. He says to Timothy, rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Okay, let me do this for the third week. What does it mean to suffer for the gospel? Well, number one, and a lot of people don't catch this, when we decide to deny ourselves, when we want to do something, or we're naturally inclined one way, or we desire something, and the Bible calls it sin, when we say no to ourselves, that's suffering for the gospel. It's loving God more than ourselves, God more than our rights. But also, when you're mocked or marginalized or attacked by family members or in public, that also is suffering for the gospel. And he's saying to Timothy, please 
join me in suffering for the gospel. Now, Peter, his contemporary, had said the same thing. 1 Peter 2.9, it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, every, every Christian, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is why we call suffering for the gospel a guaranteed place of encounter. Now, Peter's great here. You don't get credit with God. You're not commendable before God if you cheat or, or you lie or you steal or you're lazy or you cut corners and then say, oh, I, I'm suffering. No, no, you're not suffering. You've sinned. What he's saying here is if you obey God and you suffer for it, oh, that's different. You'll get reward at the end of your life. So Paul says again, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, we need to stop and do something here. What's the gospel? I mean, what is it? And why were Christians 2,000 years ago starting to be ashamed of the gospel? And maybe we should ask the question, why are many Christians today starting to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, there are many reasons. So let's start originally. Where is Timothy a pastor? Well, he's a pastor in a place called Ephesus in what they used to call Asia. Now, Ephesus was the center of occultic thinking 2,000 years ago. We, we learned that in the book of Ephesians. But at the same time, at the same time, it also was one of the great centers of Greek philosophy. And I've outlined this before, but it really matters. See, Greek philosophy taught that the spiritual was good and the physical was bad. And so the idea of physical and spiritual being united was a terrible idea. And so what people used to say who believed in Greek philosophy was either you can do anything you want with your body, sex, drugs, rock and roll in any direction, because your body really isn't you. The true you is inside, your body's just separate. Or other people are like, no, no, you need to be really strict and beat your body down because it's dangerous. Well, along comes Christianity that actually rejects not only occultism, but both forms of Greek philosophy. One person said, to the Greek way of thinking, influenced by Plato, all tangible matter is detestable. This realm of substance we have on earth is a substandard shadow of the perfect realm of ideas. Our divine spark is trapped in a prison called our body, and death is liberation from our body. The mind can fly to its true home in the realm of ideas. Therefore, to the Greek mind, everyone ready? The idea of resurrection, the, the reuniting of mind and body is absurd. It's cursed. It's actually like being jailed again. Why would anyone want to be resurrected? And so lots of people who become Christians in Ephesus are starting to be ashamed of the gospel because the central tenet of the Christian faith is resurrection. And they're like, I don't want that. You shouldn't want that either. But it goes wider and deeper. Years earlier, Paul writing to the church in Corinth said this in 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So the cross as an idea is not attractive. It's actually humiliating. It was the most humiliating way to die. It was fear-inducing. It was shocking. And, and Christians come along and say that that act is actually where you find hope and salvation. 
the cross is not compelling. It's not brilliant. It's not religiously insightful. It's not philosophically striking, nor is resurrection. It's actually foolishness, stupid, silly, idiotic, unwise, imprudent, thoughtless, irrational. But the message, this message is the key. Not just to understanding reality, but unlocking our hearts. This is the place where sin is cleaned up, where love is really found. And Paul is saying in 2 Timothy and in Corinthians, you, you know what people say against our faith because you used to say it too. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Paul says, I used to be one of the best Jewish religious thinkers of our day. And I and all my fellow Jews used to keep saying, Jesus, you have to fit in my box. Then I'll know that you're the fulfillment of our faith. But we know better. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not God in flesh. Jesus cannot be the fulfillment of our faith because you keep preaching that the Messiah died on a cross. And to an Orthodox Jew hearing that the Messiah, the son of David, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, died on a cross, which was God's plan, is like saying you can fry ice. Why? Because Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. This cannot be. How could the Messiah be cursed by God? Jesus is a fraud or he's Satan. He's good, but he's mixed up, but he is not the fulfillment of faith. Listen, he died a common criminal's death. He's supposed to come back with power and religious authority. And not only that, Jews would have said, we're the only ones who believe in resurrection. The Greeks don't. But everyone's supposed to be resurrected at once, not just one person. So that's impossible. And then, of course, all the Greeks and others say, no, no, knowledge and wisdom, that's how you connect to the divine. But the good news of Jesus is not new wisdom, and it's not new thinking, and it's not new philosophy, and it actually contradicts the very hope they have. And Paul says, unashamedly, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to non-Jews. See, no thinking person, no deeply religious person, no secular person, no spiritual person will naturally embrace, run towards love or understand the cross. Non-Jews want power, beauty, ideas, external strength, education. Jews want Jesus to conform to their understanding of the Old Testament. Almost everyone thinks they can outthink God or work their way up to God. But as one theologian said, God is out of reach. There is no wising up to God. Wisdom is giving up our own wisdom. Paul says, but to those who God has called, both Jew and Greek, Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But to those whom God gives faith to, to those that God gives life to, no matter gender or ethnic background, the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God and the love of God and the hope of God and, and the kindness of God. And notice the power and wisdom of God are the opposite of the power and wisdom of a self-made person and a deeply religious person. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. God through the cross God, through Jesus' death and resurrection, not only loves us, not only speaks to us, not only reaches out for us, he outsmarts us. See, if God had not come and cut down our religious ability and our wisdom, we'd still be what? Lost. So now, years later, Paul, at the end of his life, begins to repeat this same idea and he keeps saying to the early church and to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Actually suffer with me. Be an embarrassment with me, he says. And why is it worth it? Why is this jail cell worth it? Let me remind you of what God did through that so-called shameful, unwise, foolish act called the cross and the resurrection. Verse 9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. 
Timothy, God the Father through Jesus has saved us. Did you notice? That is written where? In the past tense. It's final. It's settled. You are saved. That's in the box. Saved from what? Sin, the devil, death, and the fear of death. And how was this all accomplished? Through our work, through our thinking? No, it says he called us. He elected us. He chose us. And he did all of this to make us holy. And now we're saved. We get to live a holy life down here in this moment. And let me just say that phrase again, not because of anything we have done, but out of his own purpose and grace. This is the death of religion. This is the death of good works to know God. This is deeply offensive to everyone. This cuts in every direction. No self-effort, no merit, no reliance on me or any other crutch. This salvation is a God deal. His calling, his saving, his sacrifice, his purpose, his grace. Once or twice a year, I use this quotation. I'm going to do it again because it is just the best simple summary of a human response to being in trouble. Do you remember this one? A man fell in a pit. Sorry to use it again, but it's so good. And he couldn't get himself out of the pit. And a subjective person came along and says, I feel you down in the pit. And the objective person came along and said, it's logical someone fell down in the pit. And by the way, that's a pit. And the Christian scientist came along and said, you only think you're in the pit. And the Pharisee actually says only bad people fall into pits. And the mathematician calculated how you fell into the pit. And the news news reporter wanted the exclusive story on your experience in the pit and how you fell in. And the fundamentalist came along and took off his glasses and say, well, you deserve to be in the pit. And Confucius came along and he said, well, if you'd listened to me, you would not end up in the pit. And Buddha said, well, no, no, the pit is only a state of mind. The realist came along and said, well, that's a pit. (laughs) And the geologist came along and said, I'd like to talk to you about the strata in the pit. And the inspector came along and said, do you actually have a permit for this pit? And the professor came along and gave you a lecture on the elementary principles of a pit. And the evasive person came along and, well, avoided the pit altogether. And the self-pitting person came along and said, no, no, you think you're in a bad pit? You've never seen my pit. My pit's way worse than your pit. And the optimist optimist came along and said, well, things could get worse. And the pessimist said, well, things will get worse. I mean, that's how the human family deals with being lost. And then Christianity comes along and Jesus comes along and it's honest that we're in the pit, but the difference is Jesus gets in the pit and carries us out of the pit because we can't get out of the pit. It was Hans Kung, the the famed, very liberal, radical Catholic thinker that once, once said, sinners stand with their hands entirely, what? Empty. Paul comes and says, God comes and gives us all we need. He calls us. He makes us alive. He gives us the ability to see. He gets in the pit. He takes us out of the pit. He gives us the ability to respond. He, he takes the grave clothes off. He does everything because he has to. I love what Tim Keller tweeted this week. We aren't even capable of truly wanting Jesus without his help. Yep. That's why Paul goes further in verse 9. This grace was given in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before the seven days of creation, before, 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 God promised within himself he would choose you, save you, hold you, never let you go. That's why years earlier, Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, which Timothy is now uh, pastoring, and he said, you have to root your identity and your faith in God's work, not your own. 
It says in Ephesians 1, 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has given freely in the one he loves. God decided beforehand he would save us. And now in this era, in this time period, all of God's mysterious thinking and will are worked out. Verse 10, it's been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who's destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, before I unpack that, let me just stop. Why is Paul talking more and more about eternity past and election? Because he wants Timothy to know that this is how you thrive in an unwinnable moment. You know your salvation is secure because God has done it. And he says, all that mysterious work is now revealed fully in Jesus through the gospel. Now, that word appearing in Greek is the word epiphany. It's the word we use for Christmas, the epiphany, Jesus' first coming. It's actually the same word in the New Testament that's used for Jesus' second coming. When he'll come back, he'll judge the earth, and he'll restore creation and start the new heavens and the new earth. And so he's saying that all of God's love has been revealed through Jesus Christ. And notice what, again, Paul says, Jesus has already accomplished, past tense, in his appearing. He has destroyed death. As one person said, he has put death out of commission. Yes, sin and death are still around, but we don't interact with sin and death like the rest of the world does. I love what the author of Hebrews said. Hebrews 2.14, listen. He said, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The gospel through Jesus secures God's calling in our life. The gospel through Jesus gives us eternal life, guarantees physical resurrection, guarantees a new heaven and a new earth, guarantees God-given immortality, and it is fully seen and understood and accessible through one act and one door and one road and one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, verse 11, and of this gospel, I was appointed herald, apostle, and teacher. Okay, this is important. A herald is one who proclaims good news. An apostle is a commissioned one and a teacher teaches. Why does he use all three? Well, we talked about apostle last week, but let me work these two out. Lots of people herald, they tell the good news, but they don't explain it. Years ago, I was hanging out with a Greek Orthodox priest. He was about 35, 36 years old. I was the same age. He walked in and unexpectedly, he was wearing a Tommy Hilfiger sweater and a collar. And I was like, oh man, I, I suppose I would have looked like that if I was a Greek Orthodox priest. So I sat down and we had a very uh, long conversation about our churches and our tradition and where we agree and where we don't disagree. And it was very insightful. And I said to him, why don't you preach more? When I go to your churches, the people don't understand. He said, because we sing the gospel. The liturgy is the gospel sung. Now, I don't know if you've read liturgies from the Eastern churches or even the Roman Catholic church or more mainline churches like the Anglican. They are so rich, so beautiful. They are filled. They're pregnant with scripture. But I said to him, yes, I know you sing the gospel, but you just can't herald it. You have to explain it. That's why in this church, we sing and teach. 
He says, this gospel that we've heralded, we also have explained. And that is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet there's no cause for shame because I know who I have believed. I'm convinced he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Well, I know who's with me. And I know who I'm standing on. And I know I have believed in Jesus Christ, which means all the benefits of Jesus are mine. But Jesus himself is going to entrust that Jesus himself is going to guard everything I've entrusted to him. Now, the question is, what is Jesus guarding? Till that day, the end of time. There are three things that Paul has entrusted to Jesus. One, his own salvation. Two, his actual ministry calling in. And three, right teaching, pure gospel teaching. And he says that Jesus is going to guard his salvation and his ministry calling and right teaching till the end of time. And he says, hey, Timothy, As I'm preparing to die, you need to keep doing this too. What you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Guard the deposit. Guard the gospel. Don't give up. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed of the good news of Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection. And then he says, oh, by the way, you can't do this on your own. (laughs) You can't defend this and guard this without the power of God. Uh, I came to realize this uh, in a very poignant way years ago. I was in chapters just north of here, and I was in the religion section. So the witchcraft and new age section was behind me, which is a whole nother sermon. I was facing the religion section, so Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and then all the Christian books. And I was looking at certain books in the Christian section, and my blood was boiling because I knew that they had not been written well, and the academics were not solid, and they were leading people down a path. And I saw people picking them up, and I just wanted to grab, don't read that, read this. And the Holy Spirit stopped and said, hey, John, do you think it's your job to defend me everywhere and stop everything? And I was like, I have to. And he went, hey, I got this. I got this. You just keep doing what I've assigned you to do. We all need to realize as things get more difficult, oh, we need to stand and preach and defend, but God's got this. He's sovereign. He's going to defend himself. He says, look, you need to keep walking your faith out. Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love. You know, it's really important that we hear this too right now. Oh yeah, we need to be Orthodox. Oh yeah, we need to be historic Christians, confessional Christians. We need to preach the cross. We need to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. We need to preach He's the only way to heaven. We need to preach there's absolute truth. But when we do these things, do you notice he says, would you do it full of faith and love? Not arrogance, not bitterness, not rudeness. The virtues of faith and love is the soil where the gospel grows. Paul then steps back, speaking right into his own context and says, now I'm going to outline the difference between being ashamed and having courage. He says, you know that everyone in the province of Asia deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, Timothy's working in Ephesus. These people were part of his local church. Now, these two people are not false teachers. They didn't go off the rails that way, but they, when the sort of the water started boiling, they got out of the pot. (laughs) They were ashamed of Paul, and and as persecution grew, they got ashamed of the gospel, it sounds like, and they wanted the benefits of Christianity without the risk, and they were fickle, and he's just basically saying, hey, Timothy, if they were fickle with me, they're going to be fickle with you. But not everyone was. 
May the Lord show mercy to the household of Oniphorus, because he was he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And on the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me and he found me. He, he's an example of encouragement and support and risk-taking, and he's not ashamed of me or the gospel. And remember, Paul's in Rome during the time of Nero. All those killings have just taken place. And Oniphorus decides to go and find Paul, which would not be an easy task, jail to jail. And every time he asks for Paul, he's risking because someone could say, well, why are you asking for that guy? Are you affiliated with him? And then it says that he actually finds Paul and helps him out. And so when he's visiting Paul, he easily himself could be called an accomplice. He easily himself could have been jailed or murdered or executed because it had happened to so many other Christians. He puts his family's honor at risk. He's an amazing model of encouragement, kindness, overcoming inappropriate shame. Paul says, may the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on the last day. You know very well how many times he helped me in Ephesus. Oh, so not just in Rome. He helped me in Ephesus too. Be an aniferous, he's saying. Okay, we're going to just pause here. What is the Holy Spirit saying to us? What what is God teaching us in this moment? Well, again, to all of you who are watching or listening, no matter where you are in the world, and maybe you are a Christian name only, uh, maybe you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or you're secular or you're spiritual or a New Age or a Satanist or a Wiccan, I, I don't know where you're coming from. If you've listened to this whole sermon, you've just heard the summary of the whole Christian faith. And actually, God has just given the good news of Jesus. He's heralded it to you. Now, of course, it's hard to hear this. It's everything, by the way, you've been looking for, whether you know it or not, but it's still difficult. One pastor got it right when he said, you know, the gospel is unattractive. It's intimidating. It's repulsive to the natural unsaved person and to the ungodly spiritual system that dominates our world. The gospel exposes our sin our wickedness, our depravity, our lostness. It declares our pride despicable and our works righteousness worthless in God's sight. The Bible makes it clear that people cannot be spiritually changed or saved by good works or by church or by ritual or any other human means. But why does God expose us like this? To shame us and humiliate us? No, no. He does this for our own good. So we'll really know our need You'll never ask for help if you do not know your need. But when you see your need, that the philosophy doesn't work or the deep religious or the spiritual exploit doesn't work, then grace, then peace, then mercy, then love, then the guarantee of physical resurrection, then eternal life is offered to you only through Jesus. All the barriers overcome through him. All the stains we've committed removed. Death overcome and the fear of death removed. All it takes is one thing. Humility. Say yes to Jesus and not a system. Yes to Jesus and not more education. Yes to Jesus and not my rights. Yes to Jesus and not to another religion. Yes to Jesus and, and no, no, just Jesus. Romans 10, 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do you do with Jesus? Many of us listening to this message are followers of Jesus. And we're listening in many provinces and countries. What is God saying to us? Well, here it is. Root your life in the sovereignty of God and not the situationalism of your circumstances. Who's in charge? 
Who really owns you? Your family doesn't really own you. Your job doesn't really own you. Your past doesn't really own you. Your limitations don't really own you. Your strengths don't really own you. You are Jesus's prisoner. And in the end, God's will prevails every single time. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those who've encountered the calling of God through Jesus by the Spirit, we who love him, he'll work out all things. Does that mean life is going to be amazing and perfect all the time? No. Look at what we're living through right now. No, no. It's ultimate good. Paul is in an unjustly held in a prison right now. Paul's about to be executed for just being a Christian right now. And he's repeating this truth. It's ultimate good. Immortality? Yes. Physical resurrection? Yes. Forgiveness of sin? Yes. Eternal reward that cannot be stolen or taken? Yes. Jesus at the end of time, mediating and judging every system, every person, and every... Yes. God's sovereignty will not be thwarted, and we will, re we will reap eternal reward. But here's the big takeaway. If you're a Christian, no matter what background you come from, don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in 2020 in Canada or whatever country you live in. You know, we need more honesty in church, not less. <laughs> Is there any part of the gospel that you wish you could admit, omit? Any part you find a little objectionable, you, you're a little embarrassed by, or you could play down? Well, just be honest about it. One of the best conversations you could have with your connect group is, I'm a Christian, but I really struggle with A. Because if you're not willing to struggle through it, you'll end up being embarrassed by it. Let me just read the gospel afresh to all of us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Jesus will not die, but will have what? Eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Who, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. How are you doing with that? Jesus himself in John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father, God, except through me. It was Peter Grief, the great American philosopher who said all great religious teachers always subordinate themselves to their own message. They always pointed away from themselves to their own teaching. <laughs> Buddha said, don't look to me, look to my doctrine. Jesus said, no, no, you come to me. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Uh, Buddha said, be a lamp to yourself. Jesus says, no, I, I'm the light of the world. John 9, 5. Moses and Muhammad said, no, we're just prophets of God. Jesus in John 8, 58 claims to be God. Then he poignantly writes out, any other religion could survive the loss of its founder. Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, if they were proven to be mythical or historical figures, the religions that stem from them might survive, but Christianity could never survive. Other religious founders only claim to teach truth. Jesus claims to be what? The truth. How are you doing with that? Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. This is Peter preaching within the first six months to a year of our movement. There is no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only one that has dealt with our sin because he's the only one without sin. He's the only one that's overcome death because he's the only one who's come back from the other side. He's the only one that has the power and the ability and the holiness and love to deal with our rescue. He's the only one that overcame the devil. He's the only one that's overcome death. He's the only one who has the power to cleanse us of sin and overcome our own selfish, selfish inclinations. 
Why am I bringing this up? Well, as things get more interesting for us here, as the gospel feels more and more un-Canadian, as the true, pure gospel is proclaimed, people are starting to say, you know, that Christian message isn't very tolerant. That's not helping with our pluralism. It seems like it's a threat to multiculturalism because every culture is right in its own concept. Here's the real one we're starting to hear. You know, this seems to be against Canadian values. Here's what Paul says during a persecution. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death is true and his physical resurrection is true. He is the son of God. He is the fulfillment of the, only, of the Jewish faith. He is the only way to heaven. He's the only one who can save. And, and we need to be like Oniphorus and like Paul and Timothy. Faithfulness over famous, sacred over scandal, Bible molded over personal brand, supernatural power over natural ability, promise over politics every single time. One of the best things you could do this week is talk through in your connect group parts of the gospel you struggle with and really work it through. But we need to make a fundamental decision. We're not going to be ashamed of the gospel because that's where the power of God is. And we also need to make a commitment that we're going to model the gospel with faith and love when we share it. There's a time coming where it is going to be more and more difficult to be a Christian in this country. We're not under persecution now, not really. But it is edging from apathy to hostility. And we need to be ready in kindness, not connected to any political movement or party, transcending that just to declare Jesus is Lord. And he is the way to heaven and he is the one who can bring life. Thanks, Lord, that even in that jail cell moment, Paul through the Spirit, invites certain people now to actually accept Jesus. Thanks that sovereignty is stronger than situationalism, and in the end you make all things right. Would you, Holy Spirit, speak to certain people across the church and remind them you're going you're to make all things right in the end? And I just pray our church, in a real humble posture, would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. Help us to boldly proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the answer to the world's ills. And Lord, where we're uncomfortable, we're embarrassed or struggling, help people to be honest, not shamed for it, and then begin to work it out. Thanks, Lord, for this moment. And we all pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week as we gather again to be encouraged by Second Timothy in this very unique moment. See you next week. 